All right. Well, this morning we have the privilege of hearing the word preached to us from our brother E.J. Rizal. And I've known E.J. for quite a while now. Um, I don't know how many years has it been? I think since like 2015, maybe 2015. Um, and E.J. and I used to get together uh, like once a week or so early in the morning before work and pray. And I just, there are so many ways in which God has used EJ to encourage me in my own walk with God, just in those mornings praying together. And uh, yeah, I mean, even, even some of the things that I say in praying, like, Lord, even on our worst day, you still love us. You know, that's something that I remember as we were sitting at Bradley's Donuts in uh, Farmington one morning, uh, EJ prayed that, and that just hit me. I was like, that's right. That's, that's the grace of God, you know? And so uh, I'm, I'm just blessed to call EJ a friend and a brother in Christ, and I'm looking forward to hearing him uh, bring us the word this morning. He comes to us uh, from, P- from Prairie Grove First Baptist Church, which we prayed for just a moment ago, and uh, he serves as a deacon there. And so looking forward to hearing the word from Brother EJ Rizal. Brother. Well, greetings in the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. My name is E.J. Roussel. It is is a great honor and privilege to get to be here with you all and to actually get to preach the Word. Um, I am so encouraged about what the Lord is doing in and through this fellowship. Um, Yeah, I've gotten to know your pastor for going on 10 years now, and everything he said, the feeling is mutual. You guys have a great pastor. Um, And it's my prayer, and I bring you greetings from your sister church in Prairie Grove, Prairie Grove First Baptist Church. And my prayer for you is that what would be true of you is what was true of the Thessalonians. We read in 2 Thessalonians 2-3, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And that's my prayer for you. My prayer for you is that your faith would be increasing abundantly and that your love that each one of you has for one another would be growing and increasing as well. And with that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, may it be so. Lord, I pray for this sweet church that you would grow their faith that you would grow their love for one another, that this church would be a vibrant, bright light in the midst of a really dark world. And Lord, I pray that as we look at Psalm 110 this morning, Lord, I pray that your son would be magnified and lifted up. Lord, I pray that as we look to the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our faith would be strengthened, that as we look at the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our faith would be nourished, that we would lean less and less on on ourselves, but as we turn and look at the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would find comfort and nourishment for our souls. Lord, we want to honor you in all that we do. So I ask that you would get me out of the way, 
Lord and Holy Spirit, would you proclaim your word to your people? Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, open your Bibles to Psalm 110. And I wonder, when was the last time that you sat down and pondered the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he means for you? When you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you think of him? Friends, it's with this in mind that we turn to this Psalm of David. This is the text, Psalm 110, from which the, that the New Testament quotes more than any other. This text is quoted in the New Testament even more so than Isaiah 53. That's how important this particular text is. It's truly an anchor text for the New Testament writers. Psalm 110 is only seven verses long, and yet it weaves together in a very small space some gigantic themes that are found throughout the New Testament and are critical to our understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ and also the gospel itself, namely the kingship of Christ and the priesthood of Christ. Beloved, if you're going to mature in your faith, if you're going to progress to a mature faith and have a full-orbed understanding of the gospel, then you need to understand what Psalm 110 teaches and how it applies to our lives as Christians. It's not a coincidence that the New Testament takes up and quotes this text from the Old Testament more than any other. You have to understand Christ's kingship and his priesthood and how they come together in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you neglect these aspects of Christ's person and work, you will have a malnourished understanding of the gospel at best, and at worst, potentially a false understanding of the gospel. But oh, how your faith will be strengthened, and oh, how your faith will be comforted by understanding these two massive facets of Christ's person and work and how they apply to your life. So before we jump in, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 476. Page 476. Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, what we see from this text, and this is our main point this morning, is that the Lord Jesus Christ is king of kings. The Lord Jesus Christ is king of kings. It's imperative that we understand that Jesus Christ is king. Because the gospel flows out of this. He isn't like normal kings. 
Jesus Christ is the king of kings, and his kingship is a unique form of kingship. And Psalm, Psalm 110 gives us a glimpse of the king and some characteristics of his kingship that we need to know. We're going to be looking at three of them, and these are going to serve as our subpoints this morning. Number one, the Lord Jesus Christ is the exalted king, verses one through three. Number two, the Lord Jesus Christ is the priest king, verse four. And number three, the Lord Jesus Christ is the conquering king, verses five through seven. So let's jump in. The Lord Jesus Christ is king of kings. What kind of king is he? What kind of king is he? First, the Lord Jesus Christ is the exalted king. Verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Friends, this text is royal in nature. In the midst of all the chaos that we live day in and day out, Psalm 110, like a, like a flowing stream in the wasteland, gives us a healthy dose of refreshing reality. And this reality is that Christ is king. Christ is king. He is on the throne, and he is ascended above the heavens. He is exalted. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You may notice that the word Lord is used twice, and there, there's two different spellings. The first is spelled with all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And when you're reading and you come across that, the word Lord in all caps, you can be sure that what you are seeing is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. When you see capital L, little o, little r, little d, what you're seeing is not a name of God, but a title of God. And this title is Adonai, and it means sovereign one or king. So what we have here is David, the king of Israel, prophesying in the spirit, Yahweh says to my sovereign one. Yahweh says to my sovereign one, there is one who is more sovereign even than King David. Historically, the Jews have taken this to refer to the Messiah. And this was Jesus' exact point in the Gospels where he's arguing with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22, 41 through 44, that the Messiah can't merely be David's son because he calls him Lord. And the New Testament witness is that this Messiah is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah that the Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings pointed forward to. As St. Augustine said, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is the New Testament revealed. Actually, it's the other way around. I'm sorry. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Jesus Christ is the point of the Old Testament, and David, by inspiration of the Spirit, is writing of the exaltation of the Messiah. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Beloved, to sit is a posture of rest. Remember that David is writing a thousand years before the time of Christ, and we live on this side of the crucifixion and resurrection. 
The Lord Jesus Christ has completed the work that his father had given him to do. And now he has ascended and he has taken his seat at the right hand of his father. To sit at the right hand, uh, to sitting is also, also a posture of power and authority. Kings sit on their thrones. They don't stand on them. To sit at the right hand denotes the place of highest honor and pride of place. It constitutes unrivaled power and authority. And that's where the Lord Jesus Christ is seated, at the right hand. All authority is mine in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, 18. The coronation of the king has taken place. The Lord Jesus Christ is the exalted king, and King Jesus is now on the throne. And what of his enemies? Yahweh says that they will be made a footstool for his feet. The word for footstool comes from military imagery where eastern princes would place their foot on the neck of their conquered enemies on the battlefield. And we actually see this take place in the book of Joshua, verse 10, 24, where the Israelites had captured five Amorite kings and Joshua calls his, pre, his uh, chiefs over and, say, and says, place your feet on the necks of these five kings and know that the Lord your God is going to do this to all of your enemies. Nothing could be more humiliating for the defeated person. And nothing could be more of an ultimate sign of the dominance of the one standing over the other. Who are the Lord's enemies? It's all who are in opposition to him and his kingdom. It is the enemies of the church, the persecutors of God's children, godless men, those who refuse to submit to the king. Those who uh, refuse to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ will, you could say, put his foot on their necks. And friends, make no mistake, Christ will be shown to be exalted amongst his enemies. Listen to Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Did you get that? And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, God has highly exalted the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the exalted king. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One more quick note on this verse. The word until. Until I make your enemies your footstool. One old commentator says that it should, the Hebrew particle for until should be understood to be continu, uh, communicating continuality. Okay, continuity as it is happening currently. So you could translate this as reign with me even now until I make your enemies your footstool. And I think that makes sense considering verse two. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The scepter of Christ's kingdom has gone forth. And beloved, make no mistake about it, Christ is ruling even now as his gospel goes forth throughout the whole world in the face of intense opposition. Christ is ruling even now. That should give you great encouragement. 
when we look at the news and we see how far our country has fallen morally, how Christians are more and more being viewed as unloving, closed-minded, and even hateful by our culture because we refuse to succumb to a pagan ethic, does it not give you comfort to know that in the midst of his enemies, Christ is ruling and his gospel is going forth? It may not always seem to be so at the time, but the exalted king has complete authority. And he's ruling for his glory and for your good. Listen to John Calvin commenting on this, and let this encourage you. Quote, what time then? Our minds are agitated by various commotions. Do you ever get like that? Let us learn confidently to repose on this support that however much the world may rage against Christ, it will never be able to hurl him from the right hand of the Father. Moreover, as he does not reign on his own account, but for our salvation, we may rest assured that we will be protected and preserved from all ills under the guardianship of this invincible king, close quote. What an encouragement. He goes on to say that there will be hardships in this life, no doubt, and that's gonna take meekness and patience as we, as we bear those up. But at the end of the day, Christ's kingdom will be enlarged. Those who refuse to submit to Christ, he's still ruling over them. So look to Christ and be encouraged. There are two types of people in the world. There are those who do not submit to Christ. They refuse to repent of their sin and believe the gospel. And they will be made the footstool of Christ's feet in due time. The other type of person is the one who believes the gospel and is under the loving protection of the king. And they are described in verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Beloved, every king has an army, and so it is with Christ. And Christ's army are the children of God, those for whom he laid down his life for and those whom he was raised for the dead for, those who have repented from their sin and sought salvation through Christ by believing the gospel. Look how they're described. They offer themselves freely, literally, like a free will offering. You think of Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. They offer themselves freely, like living sacrifices, freely and joyfully to the king's service. This isn't a forced obedience, but it's a joyful, happy longing to serve the Lord. They're clothed in holy garments. What are these holy garments? They are the robes of, of justification. Justification is the doctrine that God declares you to be righteous based on the work of Christ and Christ alone. You're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when you place your faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you repent of your sin, note that God clothes you with the righteousness of Christ himself. And note that this is something that God does. God clothes you. 
God clothes you just like he made clothing for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and clothed them, so he clothes you. And these clothes are holy garments. They're called the dew of his youth. Beloved, when you wake up in the morning on an early spring or fall day and you go out and you put your hand on the ground and you notice that the ground is wet with dew, you, you raise your, your, your head up and you look out, you feel the cool breeze and you see the grass glistening and you notice that your whole yard is covered with the dew of the morning. Now imagine if you went out and you tried to count every single drop of dew in your yard. It would be impossible to do that. It would take you millions of years to count all of the individual drops of dew on your yard. And that's what David is saying. He's saying that as the vast amount of dew covers the ground, so will the children of the king be. This is going to be a large army. His people will not be a small number. This will be a large number of those who follow him. And this is true, is it not? Think of all the, and the, think of all the Christians that there have been throughout the centuries. Millions and millions. Even now the gospel is going forth and the kingdom of God is growing and expanding in the midst of opposition. This is a picture of the Lord's people. They're offering themselves freely and joyfully to the Lord. They're clothed with the righteousness of their Savior. What about you? What about you? Do you, do you grumble in the Lord's service? Is your obedience a forced obedience or is it joyful? Beloved, if your obedience is a forced obedience, then you have not seen the beauty of our Savior because no one can look at the king and his beauty and have to be forced to obey. They are compelled to obey. Submit to the kingship of Christ freefully and joyfully. Jesus Christ is the exalted king over the universe, and that means he gets to tell you what to do. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do as I say? Luke 6, 46. What has the Lord called you to do right now? Is there a neighbor that you know you need to share the gospel with? Is there a brother or sister in Christ that you need to humble yourself and reconcile with? Who are we to say to the king, the one whom God has exalted above everything, whose enemies will be his footstool? Who are we to say to him, you know, I think I'll do what I want. We don't have that right, brothers and sisters. The Lord Jesus Christ is king of kings. He is the exalted king, the one who has taken his seat at the right hand of God, and he is ruling right now from his place of exaltation in the midst of his enemies. But that's not all that we see. Not only is this great king our king, if that were all, that would be enough, but he's also our priest, which leads to our subpoint number two. The Lord Jesus Christ is the priest king. Verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A priest in the Old Testament was a minister of God. One was designated a priest, not by their godliness, but by being born 
under the tribe of Levi. And they served various duties by, um, they, they taught the people, they also protected the tabernacle and its parts. And of course, the most important of the priests were, was the high priest. And the high priest's main function was to mediate between the people and a holy God. And what he would do is he would offer sacrifices for sin, sin for himself and for the people, and thereby uh, temporarily remove the threat of the wrath of God. But of course, they would need another sacrifice eventually because they would sin again and again and again, and the cycle would continue over and over and over again. And in the Old Testament, kings were not priests, and priests were not kings. Okay, under the Mosaic Covenant, God had commanded that priests come from one singular tribe, the tribe of Levi, the sons of Aaron. And the kings also came from one particular tribe, the, the, the tribe of Judah. We see actually one uh, instance where a king took to himself the role of a priest and offered incense to God. And this was King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26, 21. And for his efforts, the Lord struck him with leprosy and he lived out the rest of his days as a leper. Moral of the story, obey God's word. Obey God's word. There is one king that we see in the Old Testament well before the Mosaic Covenant was given, before even the Abrahamic Covenant was given, who was both a king and a priest. And this priest king's name is Melchizedek, king of Salem. He's an obscure figure. He doesn't show up very much. He comes and goes quickly. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. And king of Salem means king of peace. Can you think of anyone else who is king of righteousness and king of peace? He has a very short scene in Genesis 14 where Abraham is coming back from rescuing his nephew Lot who had been taken captive by a band of kings in their raiding parties. And I'm going to read that text. It's Genesis 14, 17 through 20. This is where we see Melchizedek. After his return, starting verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Shador Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in, at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Wow. In all the Old Testament, besides this psalm, this is all we see of Melchizedek. Three verses. And yet one of the most glorious aspects of Christ's work from us is drawn from this priest king. And that is the perpetual priesthood of Jesus Christ. And what this truth means for your faith cannot be emphasized enough. What does it mean that Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek? So, some have said that Melchizedek himself was the pre-incarnate Christ. I don't believe that because Hebrews 7.3 does not say that Melchizedek was the Son of God, but that he represented the Son of God. So Melchizedek points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true and better Melchizedek. 
Like Christ, Melchizedek was not descended from the tribe of Levi. Like Christ, Melchizedek did not have a human predecessor or successor, uh, successor to his priesthood. And like Christ, Melchizedek was a king as well as a priest. And if you want more on this, you need to read the book of Hebrews. The heart of the book is why the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system that came with it was not enough to cleanse you from your sin and why it had to be Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the book. Those priests and those offerings were insufficient because the offerings that they offered according to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 through 10, that says they could not cleanse your conscience. That's the problem. That's the problem. They dealt with foods and drinks and rituals, but your sin problem could not be fixed by the Levitical priesthood and their sacrifices. Sure, it could be atoned for temporarily, but there would have to be another sacrifice eventually. What the author to the Hebrews is saying, and I would urge you, read Hebrews chapter 7 through chapter 9. What they're saying is what you need is a better priest. You need a better priest who offers a better sacrifice in a better temple. A priest who isn't like the former, who only have their position based off lineage in the tribe of Levi. What is needed is a better priest who merits his position as a high priest because of an indestructible life whose priesthood continues forever after the order of Melchizedek and offers a sacrifice that is total. That is what we need. And this priest, the priest we need, is the priest we have. And this priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only mediator, beloved, between God and man. He's the only one. The gospel, beloved, is that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ. That even though you and I, we deserve hell for our sin, that God himself provides the remedy. He sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ lived the life that we couldn't. He fulfilled every bit of the law perfectly on our behalf. And then he went to the cross and he bore the curse that we couldn't bear, dying for our sin. And then he was raised three days later according to the scriptures and he has ascended and now he, sit, he sits at the right hand of God the Father where he is ruling the world by his wise providence. He is king. And anyone who puts their faith in this gospel and repents of their sins are justified, being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And one day Christ is coming again. And he's going to judge the living and the dead. And all who have believed in this gospel, all who have believed in this gospel will be ushered into the kingdom of God. But that day is coming. That day is coming. What is Jesus Christ doing right now? The king, your savior, is interceding for you this very moment. Listen to Hebrews 7.25. Why is it important that Christ be a priest after the order of Melchizedek? Here's the conclusion the author to the Hebrews draws. Verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
Beloved, the intercessory role of Christ as priest is like it's the back half of the gospel that never gets talked about as much. Beloved saints, why is it that you cannot lose your salvation? It's because Christ is interceding for you. It's because Christ is interceding for you. Christ pleads his precious blood before his Father, and the Father loves the Son, and he will give him whatever he asks, and the Father loves you. He gave a son for you. Oh, beloved, let this hit you with the strength of a freight train that the king who rules over you, the same king that we just looked at, the one who is exalted above the heavens, sitting at God's right hand, this same king is also praying for you. He's praying for you right now, this very moment. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Christ is our priest. We don't need another priest. We don't need another sacrifice. Christ's death was sufficient to pay for your sins. The king himself is your intercessor. He's the priest king. He himself goes before God on your behalf and the Father himself loves you. You can go through your day with all the ups and downs that you face and if you ever feel like me, like you're a failure so often, you can sit here and you can think, he's praying for me. He's praying for me right now. Beloved, does that not comfort you? Does that not comfort you? He's praying for you. Sometimes I wonder when you sit back and you look at these truths how anyone can reject the Lord Jesus. He's just incredible. Think about this. It was Christ who paid for our sins. It was Christ who was raised for our justification. When we repent and believe, it's Christ's righteousness that we're clothed with. We're united to Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Christ is the one who's been exalted at the right hand of God. Christ is the one who is the only mediator between God and man. Christ is praying for us individually and interceding for us right now. Isn't that amazing? The, 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 the largest and most beautiful diamond in the world is like a common rock when compared to the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. They just can't compare. Do you see why understanding the kingship of Christ and the priesthood of Christ is so essential? I pray that this would comfort you. Moving on to our third subpoint, we see in verses five through seven that Christ is the conquering king. The conquering king. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Like we saw earlier, Christ is ruling and reigning now, but his enemies aren't the footstool of his feet just yet. That day is coming. That day is still coming, and this text is really straightforward. Kings, the greatest of men on the earth. Think of your, the favorite, most popular celebrity you can think of, the people with the most power, the most prestige, the most iconic, whoever everyone is looking to, the biggest influencers on social media or whatever. Fill in the blank. If they are in opposition to Christ, 
they will be brought to utter ruin. Chiefs are going to be shattered and the nations are going to be judged for their wickedness. A time is coming when Christ will be vindicated before a wicked world. His enemies will be made his footstool. And that's what these three verses describe. He came first as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came first in meekness and humility, being born in a humble manger. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He came doing the works of God and died the most gruesome death you could possibly imagine, being humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. But he's coming again, and this next time he will be coming in judgment. And it will be a spectacle of awesome power. Listen to the Apostle Paul writing to suffering Christians in Thessalonica. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. The day is coming when Christ will come with his angels and inflict judgment on a wicked world. Those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. Beloved, that day's coming. Like the psalm says, kings will be shattered. Nations will be judged being filled with corpses. This is brutal imagery. This is a terrifying day for those who do not know Christ, but for those of us who belong to Christ Beloved, we will marvel at this. It'll be a glorious sight because our suffering will come to an end. Revelation 6, 15 and 17, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That day is coming. Jesus Christ will be vindicated on the earth. Psalm 110 says that he will drink by the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. This text is poetically showing the intensity at which Christ will pursue his enemies. His vengeance will be swift and it will be total. Imagine a warrior standing on a battlefield with a battle ax over his shoulder having slayed many of his enemies. And he looks up over the battlefield and he sees there are some still alive, but they're running for their life. So he charges after them. But on the way, he sees a brook and he's tired because he spent so much of his anger. So he takes a drink from the brook and refreshes himself in his hot pursuit. That sounds brutal, but that's the imagery. That's the imagery here. This is Christ. He is the conquering king. He is strengthened 
by God being at his right hand and is vindicated by the utter destruction of all those that are aligned against him. Know that, that if you are in Christ, you will be taken care of. I want to leave you this morning with some, a few more applications in, in closing. First, admire the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is. King of the universe and your advocate at the same time. The one who demands your allegiance is the one who intercedes for you. This is a staggering thought, and it should bring you great adoration from you, and also it should bring a lot of comfort to your soul. Submit to him as the exalted king and priest. Second, repent and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, we live in a state of grace currently, in between Christ's ascension and his second coming. But that time is coming to an end very soon. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I implore you to repent of your sin and believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. Receive the grace of Christ. Today is the day of salvation. You do not want to be an enemy of Christ. Don't listen to Satan who says you that you have to clean up your life first before you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Friend, Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners. If you're feeling messed up, he came for you. He came for you. Don't put this off. He laid down his life so you can be reconciled to God. This is soul work. This is urgent. He stands at the door and he knocks. What is keeping you from opening up your heart and receiving forgiveness for your sins and, and submitting to his lordship? If you want to talk more about this, please come see me. Come see Pastor Ben, any of the elders here, we would love to have that conversation with you. There is nothing more important, and he is a great master. Tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the Lord's day. Today is the day of salvation. There's nothing more important than knowing Christ. He is our king, and he is our priest. Submit to him, beloved, and serve him gladly. Let's pray. Father, we, we do praise your name. Father, it is a staggering thought that you sent your son to die for wicked people like us. Lord Jesus, when we consider your person and your work and your offices, we're just left back and all we can do is marvel at your greatness, your exalted status. You are worthy of praise and honor and glory and power. And yet at the same time, you are interceding for us day after day, keeping us, holding on to us, never letting us go. Oh, may our hearts burn with love for you and may we serve you gladly to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.